When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good to be back. Yeah, Rob's back. Was I, was it gone last week? I was. You were gone last week. Yeah, yeah. Is it all just melding together, Rob? Life just is all melding together into this gelatinous mass. It's just flashes of color and senses, and yeah, time is ridiculous lately. Mm-hmm. Months are flying by. Yep. And Serfiel's here. Yes, and I, I brought us all a nice treat. We're indulging in some Cuban yeah. cigars. Yeah, I mean, these these are awesome, man. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm forever in your debt. <laughs> and Rob, you got three more out of it, too. Well, those are for all of us. That's for later, yeah. <laughs> and joining us on the line, guys, we've got uh, David Metcalf, who I also got the privilege to hang out and had some fascinating conversations with at the Paramania event. David, welcome to Get Spirit Normal, man. It's been a long time Thanks, coming. man. Yeah, this is great. I'm excited to uh, to have a chance to continue our conversation and expand on it. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Um, you know, you and I were talking when we were there about because uh, I'd heard some a couple maybe like one or two interviews with you before about Santa Marta, and I know that you are kind of an expert on this. That you know a lot about it. And it's something that I've always kind of been wanting to explore on the show. And so let's kind of just get into this. Um, you know, what, you know, what is Santa Marta and how did you become interested in exploring this and talking about it? Yeah. Um, well, Santa Marta is a, a folk saint out of Mexico, um, represented by a, a grim reapress. So, uh, she is she's female in her representation um 
also sometimes represented as a skeletal bride. There's there's a bunch of at this point there's a ton of different uh, reaper and uh, skeleton like female skeleton iconography that go along with her. Um, and she fits within the the folk Catholic um, kind of milieu where um, you know you have your standard Orthodox saints, the saints that are accepted by the 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 church, the Roman Catholic Church, and then in most of uh, you know most areas that are heavily Catholic also have what are known as folk saints, which are um, saints that emerge from popular devotion. So they're saints that come about through, you know, the, the people giving them devotion and, and claiming that the, the saint provides some sort of miraculous intervention in their life. Um, and Santa Muerta is unique in that there's no person behind Santa Muerta. Uh, it is death itself. So in Mexico um, and throughout Latin America at this point, and then uh, actually globally, but now, um, Saint Death has arisen uh, as you know this figure that people are are paying devotion to. Um, I uh, I've done a long term project since 2013, kind of tracking the growth of Saint Death's devotions globally, uh, with Dr. Andrew Chestnut, who's the chair of Catholic Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he, he posits that there's, at least in Mexico alone, there's over 10 million uh, devotees mm. and probably more. Um, since it's a folk saint and it's a popular saint, it's kind of hard to get numbers. But uh, one of the ways that he's tracked it in the States is through um, shops, which are called botanicas, um, which serve uh, Latin American communities, uh, mostly uh, Santeria uh, devotees go there to, to get their stuff, but also um, most botanicas kind of serve everyone in the Latin American community with, you know, herbal remedies and uh, lampitas, which is a, a bath. Uh, like a cleansing bath and that, you know, anything you would need for your, uh, you know, your spiritual health, they cover and, and also physical health as well to some extent. So evil eye charms and, and stuff like that. But um, he's, he's done a, a study of botanicas looking at uh, sales of Santa Muerta. And at this point, you know, a lot of botanicas uh, will say that, you know, 50% of their sales are Santa Muerta. So you have, you know, you can see just in that alone that this this devotional tradition is huge, uh, even in the States. So um, there's devotees that we've talked to in the UK, uh, Australia. Um, his book, Devoted to Death, uh, is uh, it's got a Polish edition. Um, there's there's a, a naturalized uh, Saint Death in the Philippines which is very similar to the Mexican uh, tradition, um, which came about within the Philippines, not, not from Mexico necessarily, but those two have started to bridge thanks to the internet. Um, the, what do you mean by uh, naturalized? Well, it, so the Philippines, what San Muerta came out of, uh, it's a really interesting, um, you know, I think a lot of people would call it syncretic, but it's a little bit more 
complicated than that. And the syncretic tradition is where you've got, you know, Catholicism comes in or another religion comes in and then the religion that's already there starts to blend. Um, but Santa Muerta is really unique in how that syncretism has happened. So um, as far back as the Inquisition records, there's records of, uh, you know, the uh, First Nations people in Mexico actually um, worshipping a form of Santa Muerta uh, as a Catholic saint, but basically coming out of their relationship with passion plays. So a passion play is uh, a play that kind of retells the story of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Um, and, you know, back then they would have, and well, and still in, in mainly Catholic countries, uh, meaning that countries that have like a strong base of Catholicism, they'll have these plays that have, uh, you know, it's a reenactment of the crucifixion and they're very elaborate and, uh, you know, very, they'll march through the streets. I mean, it's, it, it becomes this huge festival kind of thing. And they would have a figure that would basically be a Grim Reaper that would come, you know, when he dies and then when he conquers the Grim Reaper, uh, this, you know, that would be acted out in the play. And so when it was brought to the Americas, uh, some of the people would actually start to see that as a, as a sanctified figure. And there's examples of this in uh, Europe as well during the plague periods where people did have prayers to Saint Death to keep death away. Um, so there's a, an interesting kind of like European tradition as well that never really took off in the way that it took off in Latin America. But so you've got Inquisition records that mention Santa Muerta. Um, in the 40s, you have records of her uh, novenas, which are a nine-day prayer. Um, and by the time it got to the 40s, she was a love saint. So she was actually used, uh, the novena is to bring a, a wandering husband back. So it would be, uh, you know, a wife or a girlfriend, you know, a, a partner that, that felt like they were being spurned. They would do this novena and try to bring their wandering uh, lover back. And then um, in the late 80s, you see Santa Muerta again um, in photos from a fellow named Adolfo Constanzo, who was a sorcerer for the cartels. Um, and he practiced a, a very heavily mixed blend of Palo Mayombe and uh, Santeria. And he claimed initiation into Haitian uh, Voodoo houses. Um, but he was... Uh, kind of a sorcerer for hire for the cartels. Um, and in the, the photos from his arrest, he, uh, he killed a Brownsville student, uh, University of Texas, I think, a student um, from Brownsville. He killed him, and that led to a kind of manhunt to find out uh, where the kid went, and that led to Adolfo's arrest and the discovery of this uh, kind of sorceress cult that was surrounding him that was doing work for the cartels. And in the press photos for that, you see a statue of Santa Muerta in the background. Um, and then in 2001 is when we see what we, we have now, the popular tradition now, um, when a lady named Dona Keita in Tepito um, in Mexico City, uh, as a her she had a familial devotion to it. At that point, it was a really underground tradition. Um, and uh, her son was, I think he was stabbed in the head in some kind of gang violence. 
and she had petitioned Santa Muerta for uh, his healing, and her son made it through, and as a thanks to Santa Muerta, bought uh, Dona Keita a life-size skeleton effigy, which was too big for her uh, for her room, so she brought it out into a, a public a glass case in front of her, her shop, and uh, that became the center point for uh, kind of the spread that we see now in the in the popular devotions, um, and that was in 2001. And you know, before that, it was very underground. Um, it it hadn't really taken off. Um, when she did that, it kind of it hit at the right moment, and it was just a spark. And people started wearing their uh, their amulets and stuff in public, more on display. Um, so it kind of, it, it exploded out of that, but the, you know, so it's got these, these different points in time where it pops up. What we see now is, is a massive, mostly thanks to the internet. Um, you know, it's global spread. Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of just the culture has a, has a place for her right now. So I, I think, uh, I think maybe breaking bad might've helped a little bit too. Yeah. It's breaking kind of bad exploration yeah. of the Mexican drug cartels and, you saw Santa Marta a lot in that in that series. Yeah, the TV show, you know, and there was there's other examples of her too in in uh, in popular culture. Uh, Catherine Ironwood, um, prior to Breaking Bad, she runs Lucky Mojo um, Curio Company, and so kind of the neo hoodoo movement and the neo conjure movement. Um, she was selling uh, Santa Marta. Uh, items out of her shop and had some uh, discussions on her message board about it. Um, and there's other examples of folks that I've talked to that, you know, they were uh, working in restaurants in uh, New Orleans and the cooks were, uh, were devotees. So, um, you know, and that, that was the other thing her, you know, she's a, at this point, she's kind of a patroness of lost causes. And one of the other you know, outside of cartels and that, you saw her in um, folks that were crossing the border would have uh, chaplets um, and little amulets and stuff as a kind of like, you know, I hope if I do die in the desert, I die well, um, and hopefully I don't die. So they would petition Santa Muerta to, um, to uh, help them get over. And I've talked to folks that were, um, you know, folks from Mexico that uh, knew of her as the the kind of love spell and love sorceress. So, um, you know, and it, but Breaking Bad as a as a popular kind of touch point definitely did have a, a large, you know, it made her much more visible. But it, also the gr- the growth of uh, kind of the the new age occult movement that we have now, um, she's really taken off through that as well. Just to go back a little bit, um, Tapito, this this area in Mexico City, yeah, is apparently probably one of the most dangerous areas or most high crime high crime area. But uh, you know, so sh- I was reading a little bit about her and the, the Wikipedia article about Santa Marta, and um, and we'll talk about the link to criminality in a little bit, but. There's there's also people that like work at night, um, people that um, people that like taxi drivers, um, yeah, people, like police officers even yeah. that venerate her, that see her as some kind of protector, and she's yeah. also 
very huge and kind of like the, 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 the sex worker and the kind of like the, and also kind of like the, the LGBT. So she kind of has this appeal to a lot of these kind of like groups that are kind of like on the liminal fringes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you know, Tapito um, has actually been a black market since the Aztec period. So it's Mm. history as a, as it's also called the Barrio Bravo. So the danger, you know, the, the strong neighborhood, but really the dangerous neighborhood. Um, uh, yeah. And it, uh, she is kind of seen as a, as a protectress. So, you know, anyone who's in a, an occupation that's going to put them in danger, like taxi drivers or prostitutes, um, you know, they, Santa Muerta is the, you know, it's St. Death. So, you know, as Andrew talks about it, who better to, to talk to, to kind of keep death at bay than death, you know? Um, and that, that's, she plays a large part in that. And it's interesting with the, uh, LGBT community because, um, Arlie, uh, who's a devotee up in the Bronx, um, she, uh, she's trans and she actually went to Santa Muerta after being terrified by Santa Muerta and not wanting nothing to do with it. Um, she turned to Santa Muerta after she was rejected by the Catholic church. She went into, a, um, you know, to, I think she went into confession and the priest told her, we don't want you here. Like you have no place in the church, get out. And, uh, she had some dreams, I believe. And then, uh, about Santa Muerta and, uh, started petitioning Santa Muerta and, you know, ended up becoming a U.S. citizen. And she has a beautiful life in the Bronx now and uh, a husband and she's super happy and she you know she says that that was all from Santa Muerta yeah so it's not just a negative it doesn't it's not just like a, a negative connotation which I think a lot of people in the United States see it as that that the whole skeleton aspect and because it looks like the grim reaper and yeah no and that's you know in Mexico the death culture is is completely different as well throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, the death culture is completely different. And the way they look at death is completely different in the culture. So, um, it doesn't have quite the connotation down there. Now, if you talk to folks from, uh, from Mexico about Santa Muerta, you're either going to get a neutral, uh, opinion where they're like, I haven't even really heard of that or, uh, a positive, uh, opinion, depending on like what their their social level is, or you're going to have a complete horrified get away from me. Don't ever mention that name. You know that's horrible. Uh, you know I don't want anything to do with that. So it's interesting that you know the the kind of the bad name that she has in the states through a lot of kind of lurid news reporting um, is also prevalent in Mexico as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of people I've had instances where, uh, I've started talking about it and like, that was definitely not the right thing to say. And, uh, it really made some people uncomfortable. So, you know, it, it, her bad reputation, uh, is not, not isolated to the U S. Well, and like, uh, I guess she appeals to a lot of these marginal people because of this, uh, I've heard you talk before about, she's got this neutrality to her because I guess death is like the grand leveler. And yeah. so it, she has a, a neutrality and an, and I guess a not kind of non-judgmental way that uh, that does attract both people on the margins and criminals to her, and then the media picks up on seeing criminals being devotees, and you know they're like, oh well, it's a criminal cult. 
when it's really yeah. just a kind of a neutral thing. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that, uh, that it's, you know, that that's very highlighted. A lot of, uh, devotees will talk about, you know, the, that neutrality in that. And the neutrality does play into the fact that, you know, she's known as the saint that you go to if you wouldn't, if you couldn't, you know, there's a couple different ways that people turn to her. Um, one of which is that they've prayed to all the other saints and they couldn't, it wouldn't work. You know, it was a legitimate prayer. Like, um, she's really big over addictions. So folks will, you know, addicts will pray to her and they won't get a response. And so, or I'm sorry, addicts will pray to, you know, Virgin of Guadalupe or they'll pray to one of the other standard saints and uh, they won't get a response. And then they'll turn to Santa Muerta and they'll get, you know, they'll get a response in, in their, you know, in their experience. And so that she's become known as, you know, the, the saint that will come through when the other saints won't. And then also because of that neutrality, um, you know, some folks will pray to her for things that they couldn't pray to other saints for that, like, just would not be, you know, they wouldn't be acceptable to pray to, you know, the Virgin of Guadalupe to make sure that you didn't get caught when you were stealing or something like that, you know, or, or kidnapping or something, you know, or drug running or, or whatever. Um, and it's, you know, in a, in a technical religious studies sense, there's multiple different uh, Santa Muertas, basically, in terms of how the devotions are done, and the the narco element and the kind of criminal element is is almost a different saint in terms of uh, how it's approached and you know the the way that it's approached and how it's how it's kind of pictured um, in the in the criminal sort of sense. Uh, there's the idea that she's also very vengeful. So if you ask something from her, you better do what you said you're going to do to to pay off the the debt. And if you don't, you know, there's stories about relatives dying, uh, you know, before their time, or you know, you'll get paid back in some way that's horrible um, if you don't pay your debt to Santa Muerta. Um, you know, and then there's the the non-criminal variant. Oftentimes, that's not. It's not really, there may be some sense of that where like, you know, you've got to make sure you pay your debts, but it's not quite as, uh, as violent or scary. It seems like the criminal interest may be in, um, that it can be, it has some utility in like, uh, creating some cohesion or sense of duty in some of these criminal organizations. And it's a way of like cloaking the criminal organization in some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of metaphysical or spiritual, uh, aspect to it. So is that kind of what, what we're seeing in like the media and stuff They're they're discovering this because it's being used as a tool by these criminal networks to kind of like, for, I mean, I guess kind of for like mind control in a way, like for, you know, for cohesion and for creating yeah. more of a sense of duty. Yeah, and there's uh, there's a fellow Robert Bunker um, who's a he's a an analyst that works for the the Army War College. Um, he was a futurist in residence for uh, Quantico, which is the FBI's training facility, and he's done a lot of uh, studies on the criminal element of it. And one of his uh, his I think the book is called Blood Sacrifices or something like that. Um, but it's basically about uh, the what we're seeing now is a kind of global movement of the his technical term for it is dark magico religious practices 
And so I think one of the things that most folks probably don't understand is that when you have criminal gangs or you have organized crime, there's oftentimes a uh, religious, uh, magical religious sense to it where, um, you know, petitionary prayer is done or petitionary, you know, spell work is done to protect and to, you know, harm opponents or to, you know, get some divination to, to see if you're, you're going to be okay or if your drug run's going to go okay or whatever. So um, in that sense, she plays into that, that tradition of being one of the most powerful saints you can use, um, you know, in spell work and that to, to contact and kind of, uh, um, you know, work that, that type of, of magic. And so, you know, again, the criminal variety is very much within this tradition of sorcerers for hire, um, that, you know, black magic and the way that people would, would think of it, you know, from like the movies and stuff. Um, and so she's used, you know, in that sense to kind of, uh, hurt opponents or protect your own people and that and uh a lot of the the cartels have patron saints so the the folk saint tradition within the cartels and that has emerged so that um you know the uh the knights templar cartel had the son nazario who was their founder and once he died maybe he he seems to have died a couple times um, but when he, uh, you know, when he may or may not have died, he became sanctified by them as, as San Nazario. And, uh, he was, uh, basically, uh, the icon for him was a knight, you know, a, a Knights Templar knight, and, uh, they would pray to him for protection. And so, um, San Muerta has come up as, um, you know, a pretty, you know, a pretty good icon for, for criminal gangs, um, in that sense, you know, but, um, what, for the most part, what you, for, you know, when Andrew says the, the 10 million and more, um, or definitely in terms of the, the global growth, that's not the, there, there may be some spell work involved, but it's more new agey, um, or Wiccan or neo-pagan and less, uh, you know, the kind of hardcore, um, cartel sorcerer sort of thing, you know, and you see this, it's not, it's not limited to Mexico either. Um, you know, the, uh, there's groups in Africa where they, they work with sorcerers, um, for, for criminal purposes and that, uh, the mafia has yeah. actually in, uh, in Italy, they have some, uh, elements that, that kind of tie into that. They have initiation ceremonies that are very, um, magical, religious oriented, um, and it's just something that the public doesn't really have a, a clear grasp on. It's never been really codified or written about in a really open way, I guess. Yeah, even uh, Ameri- black American street gangs use occult symbols. and it's, Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's everywhere. Yeah. yeah, and that's, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's not a popular topic. And it's something, too, that, like, unless you have... Uh, access to that you know then you're not really going to see it because that's not the stuff that like it's forefronted you know nobody nobody's going to be hanging out their their sorcery you know that's that's definitely like a a back room kind of thing right when i found out that that about so kind of like the street gangs and their symbolism and having some kind of knowledge of you know the symbols of freemasonry it kind of blew my mind how 
close that is, how close it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like, like, uh, you guys were saying the, the idea that it's an organizing factor as well, yeah. you know, it helps organize the group. It's a group identity thing. And that's actually where, uh, Robert Bunker's research gets really interesting because what they're, you know, what the, the military and the FBI are concerned about is, does it act as an amplifier for violent behavior? Um, there's been, discussions of human sacrifice um that may or may not be tied to Santa Muerta. Um and uh there's rumors of some pretty bloody and violent um initiation rituals, which gang initiations a lot of times are bloody and violent anyway. Um so it doesn't, you know, it may not even be that Santa Muerta really amps it up that much. But um the idea of having a death saint over that uh, you know, it, it makes folks worried that we may be seeing um, something that's going to, you know, take it up a notch where it's already in, you know, in North Mexico and the cartel violence is insane. So, um, you know, the, the worry is that this this will be uh, some sort of like amplification of that. You know, it hasn't happened yet, really. The the human sacrifice stories and that uh, they they pop up every once in a while, but it's no more frequent than. Uh, <laughs> than human sacrifices in the news. That sounds weird, but uh, you know, it's not. You don't. You don't have like. You don't have a significant amount more human sacrifice. It's you know. It just so happens that these human sacrifices have some some element of the person being a, a devotee or something. You know. When was the first time you really encountered it uh, in, your, uh, in your personal life, or, or was it through studying? Yeah, well, it was interesting. I saw a, I saw a news story in two thousand five, and uh, it was because the you know the like you're saying the the idea of the this grim reaper this this skeleton saint is it's pretty uh, picturesque. You know, it's pretty eye eye catching. And so the news when this you know in two thousand one it goes public, and then by two thousand five there was uh, you know a couple other. Um, cult and i don't mean that in like a pejorative way but there you know it is the santa muerta they call it the you know the cult of santa muerta so uh it just means body the body of worship for santa muerta so there were a couple other cult leaders um that had arisen in mexico city outside of dona Keta, who really isn't a cult leader she's kind of just a, a a very charismatic devotee that the news has you know kind of glommed onto and that she happened to have this street shrine that a ton of people went to, but there were some other folks. Um, uh, I believe his name is David Romero. He, he, he got sentenced to 666 years in jail for, uh, <laughs> wow. um, yeah, for, I think extortion and kidnapping. Um, but he had a, he had a temple in Mexico city that was kind of attempting to uh commercialize and sort of uh centralize worship and uh there was another fellow uh jonathan vargas uh who ended up being killed and turning into uh san padrino uh and uh or commandant pantera which is uh commander panther or commander lion um he uh, he was another figure that kind of rose up. He had a radio show and a heavy media presence, um, and he was using Santa Muerta to kind of challenge the status quo. Um, also, uh, he was, from his books, it seems he was doing some sorcery for hire for different people. 
Um, but yeah, so there were these different figures that kind of rose up. So it started to become a lot more prevalent in, in the streets and of Mexico city. Uh, and some photojournalists went down there and started doing stories. So 2005, I don't, it may have been a time magazine piece, but I just saw these pictures of these processions, which I think, uh, breaking bad had the people, you know, doing, uh, crawling on their knees to the, yeah. the chapel. And yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah. you know, and so and it, they were they were parading with these massive, you know, like life size skeletons uh, in this this Catholic processional, and I was just like, "What is this? You know, this is this is crazy." And uh, my my interest, you know, I in college I did cognitive philosophy and comparative religions with the focus on folk magic. So this to me was just like, you know, this was the the ultimate form of that, you know. So. Um, I became really fascinated by it and kind of tracked it over the years. And the the news stories were always, you know, very standoffish on it, um, confused by it. Uh, there were some military reports that came out. Um, I think in 2005, there was a report from the Army War College uh, on it. And, you know, I read all everything I could get my hands on on it. Um, and then in 2012, Andrew Chestnut published his book, and at that time, uh, I was the the books review editor for the Revealer, which is uh, New York University's uh, religious religion and media studies journal. It's an online uh, web journal. And uh, when his book came out, I was like, "Oh, this is great! Like, this is the first English language treatment of it." You know, uh, and so I got an interview with him. And then shortly after that, we were invited to come up to the Morbid Anatomy Library in Brooklyn and uh, do a panel discussion on it. And then Andrew and I started working together on a on a digital end of this, which is the SkeletonSaint.com site, and kind of tracking it and uh, using Facebook and using social media to get to know devotees and and kind of have conversations and and see how this this tradition was growing. So, you know, it was probably, it was about 2005 that, that really, I saw it. And when I saw it the first time, you know, my, my initial thought was a death cult in Mexico. There is absolutely no way that I will be able to study this in the way that I want to. And, uh, it's amazing now to look back on that because, you know, I, I've become <laughs> so, so immersed in the study of, of Santa Muerta in a way that I never, ever, ever thought that would, you know would happen well so probably i mean where you are you can probably even though you're in a pretty rural area but you can probably walk into a shop and you can find a santa Marta candle yeah oh yeah yeah if you go to you know if you go to uh you know there uh any kind of mexican market any flea markets that have uh, a large latin american presence you can find any you know you can find all the paraphernalia um t-shirts the whole deal. Um, and that, you know, I was up until 2011, I was living in the Chicago area. So it was everywhere. You know, I mean, I could drive down the street and just go to markets and flea markets and stuff and, and find it and talk to people. And it's been interesting where I'm at now, cause I'm in rural Georgia, um, a little ways outside of Athens. And, uh, I was in uh, goodwill one time in Athens and oh. this lady, was you know she was this middle-aged lady was there and she was wearing a Santa Muerta shirt and I walked up to her and asked her about it huh. and sure enough she was a devotee and that, you know that's Athens Georgia you know so um, yeah it's it's everywhere you know anywhere there's uh, you know a pre- Latin American 
folks. You've got you've got Santa Muerta somewhere there. As far as the criminal aspect of it is the, it, I guess it could be used as like kind of an, an intimidation tactic as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's been there's been some interesting cases uh, in Tennessee as well. I think actually was one of them where yeah. uh-huh. uh, where they were using Santa Muerta basically as a like um, as a way to to extort people. You know, so you would have a you know a, a the the sorceress use of Santa Muerta and the kind of like threats. You know, of if you don't give me the money, you know, a Saint Death is coming after you, and I'm a powerful, uh, you know, wizard. And so, uh, I guess what it yeah, be a, a brujo, yeah, a brujo or yeah. bruja, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tie, then that's and that's where it, you know that's where it ties into the the practice of brujeria, and there there are separate traditions within that um, of of working the saint in that way, um, you know that that kind of. Again, it's different than what the there's a devotional tradition, there's a tradition which within uh, Mexican witchcraft and Caribbean witchcraft and South American witchcraft, um, and it's interesting too because she's also spread into different traditions where um, santeros will work with her uh, even though she's not naturalized to uh, the Orisha, so she'll she's popped up in some some work. And, you know, they'll start working with her. But, you know, a lot of uh, Santeria people will, you know, that wouldn't at all be anything they would ever think to do. But, you know, in some houses she's popped up. And the same thing with uh, Budan and that where um, not naturalized to Haiti at all. And yet um, she'll pop up in a, in a ceremony or in a possession case and then they start working with her. Um, there was a case in Clarksville, not too far from here where we are in Nashville. There I think from a couple of years ago, there was a guy that I guess that he was being held in a trailer by somebody and they were trying to sacrifice him to Santa Merita. Yeah, that's yeah, I read about that uh-huh. one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you know, and that's where the the kind of the worry comes in because the you know Obviously, these things are pretty loose. So, if somebody gets it into their mind that Santa Muerta said to kill, and they really believe it, you know, it can get pretty hairy. You know, um, whether or not that person would have had that idea with something else, you know, is you know, you can't really tell after the fact. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of cases like that, and obviously, the news loves that. Like that's that's yeah. something that the news really wants to to jump on. You we had that sensational, in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was there was a news story in Atlanta, um, I think this month, which was just, it was it was completely absurd. They were talking about how Santa Muerta is popping up everywhere in Atlanta now, um, which is stupid because I've been here since 2011, and you know one of the first things I did was look for Santa Muerta, and she was here. So yeah. you know it's not popping up like it's been here. So. Um, and you can, I mean, you can literally go to like a local like. You know, there's a there's a gas station uh, in in Athens. Um, they don't have uh, I, they, at least at least out in the open. You maybe I haven't asked them because it's a you know I want to go back there, and if they didn't, like that could turn like really bad. But like um, sometimes shops will have it in the back room, you know, because of the way it looks, and they don't want to be marginalized by that. But uh, they had uh, Jesus Malverde. Yeah. 
pendants like right out in the open so it's like you know the stuff isn't popping up it's like right there it's like at this you know at the gas station down the street you just you know if you look for it and you you know what to look for you can find it you know well i always get nervous too whenever like there's like media sensationalism against a uh you know seemingly strange new religious movement or something just because you know i mean we religious freedom is really you know supposed to be really big to us and like We've even had here, we had like a, 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 I think a Central American folk magic practitioner who was like, they, there was a big criminal case and all this and a big thing on the news. But I was like, what's the difference between what, what they're doing and what a million, you know, backwoods preachers are doing out here, you know, like, yeah, because yeah. people were giving her money and stuff. Well, yeah, that's what usually happens. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, right. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it makes yeah, me, Joel kinda, yeah, it makes yeah, me kind of upset yeah. when I see that. Stuff like that always happens in immigrant groups, especially, you know, yeah. like my mother, t- you know, tells me that her grandmother was kind of like a fortune teller for the community, you know, right? the Greek community in, in Wisconsin, that little community there. So, I mean, these, these things always tend to happen with like newly immigrant groups. Yeah. And that's where you get, you know, that's one of the, been the interesting thing, uh, looking at Santa Muerta because it is so outside of, of things and you can really track it. Um, is seeing that and then seeing the commonalities to so many things that people just look over and don't think about, or they're just like, oh, that's the weird thing that the rural people do, or that's, you know, Pentecostals and we don't think about that. Right. Um, you know, and living in rural Georgia, um, you know, a lot of people will say that Santa Muerta comes to them in their dreams and then, you know, they, they become, uh, devotees. Well, you know, if you talk to Pentecostals or charismatic Christians, they have dreams about Jesus telling them stuff all the time, you know, and like, you know, stories about, well, that's how I received the Holy Spirit was I had this dream and then, you know, I went and did that. So it's, you know, it's the same exact narrative. It's just one is, you know, somewhat culturally acceptable in the U.S. and the other looks like it's alien and weird and other when really it's really similar in the experience and then the narrative of it, you know. You know, it's uh, my, my ex-wife was from Brazil. And she was, she grew up evangelical. And I can remember one time she was, she just picks up the Bible, closes her eyes, opens it to a certain page. And I asked, well, what are you doing? She says, well, this is how I read the Bible. I just open it up and I just go to a certain page and this is what God tells me. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just thinking to myself, well, you know, that's using the Bible as a divination tool. Yeah. 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 It's actually called bibliomancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a divination name for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, and it's become, uh, there, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazingly common, you know, and it's interesting too, because evangelical, um, in terms of their denominational beliefs, like that's completely against, uh, doctrine. You know, and yet it's within the, you know, that within the folk tradition is something right. that happens all the time, you know. Right. And you get into Pentecostalism, that's when you get some really, you get some really strange things. Snake handlers and all kinds of yeah. things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, like this whole idea that they can manifest gold and raise yeah. people from the dead. and I mean, Yeah, there's can- a whole... Well, if you go on Facebook, go on Facebook and type in dead raisers. Yeah. There are groups, there right. are groups that like have someone will die and they'll post in there like so and so has died. I need their I need you to pray for them to be raised. And it's like I mean it's 
it's an I've I'm in some of the groups, so it pops up on my feed and like it's weekly, if not daily. You know, so it's not, you know, and again, it seems odd that there's people that are doing that, but it's big enough that it's on Facebook with a group that like probably has at least a thousand or more people in it, you know, that are, are doing this on the regular, you know, and that's not even the like global tradition, you know, that's not even the people that aren't on Facebook or who are doing it and, you know, not in that group. So yeah, these are, these are beliefs that are, you know, still prevalent and around and, um, but in in Christianity, not just you know some some othered uh, tradition. But these are some of the same people that will say, "Well, the stuff that the Catholics do, venerating the Virgin Mary, that's so weird." Or all the saints, it's just so weird. But yet they'll do yeah. just as weird stuff. You know, it's 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 very there's there's definitely kind of like a cognitive dissonant dissonance there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Jeffrey Kripal talks about religious studies as you have to die two deaths. You have to die to what you believed in, and then you also have to die to what you replace that belief with. And then once you've gotten over those two hurdles, you can start to look at the world in a way where you go, oh, okay, you know, there's, there's all these different traditions and there's all these different belief structures. And then there's phenomena that happens that, that those belief structures kind of hang on, um, you know, and start to kind of look at that. Have you have you had any uh, personal encounters with it, Adam? Did you just have you just seen the candles and stuff, or have you known the any devotees? Yeah, I've just seen the candles and stuff like that. I haven't, I haven't said. I mean, I've known um, Mexican people, none of which that I've that I know. I mean, maybe they have a passing knowledge of it, yeah. or they just didn't tell me. Well, it's, I mean, because it's new, I, I grew up in, in Phoenix, uh, with, with a lot of, uh, Mexican immigrant community. And I never, I don't remember seeing any of it as a child, but around the turn of the century here, I, I started seeing the, uh, the candles, but then I didn't really get close to it until I was working in construction and we'd have a bunch of crews of, of Central Americans and Mexican immigrants. And, uh, this one guy in particular, I, I would see like, he'd be wearing like a, a wife beater shirt or something. And I would see his little, like the edge of the tattoo. I was like, Oh, that's Santa Morte. And then one day I was like working, I was like walking by his work van and I looked in the van and I like kind of got taken aback because they had like a, like a Halloween kind of cloak mask with a skull on it. You know, he had it like hung up behind the seats uh-huh. and I was like, Oh crap. But th- that's something you talked about too, is that they, uh, repurpose a lot of this pop culture imagery and like heavy metal imagery and stuff and yeah and yeah turn is, it into yeah. shrines and turn it into yeah well because you know and that's something that that's another thing that uh you know i think we've got a special guest appearance by a bird by the way yeah yeah that's a whipper will welcome to georgia uh, <laughs> uh welcome to the, the backwoods here um we, it, yeah, once it gets to be about like 3 a.m. and that thing's going and it's just like piercing through the windows, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not fun. But uh, there it stopped. It heard me. It was like, OK, I'll stop. Um, the It's really interesting because, you know, in terms of the, you know, in the U.S., um, a lot of it has been kind of like an upper middle class curiosity And so people have the money to go and buy statues and, you know, all these different candles and all the rest of it. 
Um, but, you know, Santa Muerta being a, a, a patroness of the margins, that's not always the case, especially in Mexico City and like, a you know, in Tepito and that, like, folks don't have money to throw around on stuff. So um, you, you see the use of just basically whatever is available um, to kind of do that. You know, uh, there's devotees that have been around Santa Muerta for longer than the popular movement. And they get kind of upset because of the the amount of, you know, commercial paraphernalia that's available. Um, because to them, the tradition was that you made your icon or your icon was made by a, a devotee and it was given to you as kind of an initiation. Um, you know, uh, and so, you know, one step out of that is repurposing anything that had a Grim Reaper on it. And so it's been one of the things that I was really fascinated with early on was that, uh, you know, you could go to Walmart and the same t-shirt that they were selling in their t-shirt thing, which was on, you know, it was a Grim Reaper image. You could go to Mexico city and that Grim Reaper would have Santa Muerta written under it and it would be a devotional t-shirt. Whereas, you know, at Walmart, it was just like right next to the other skulls and the, you know, like whatever, like Rainbow Cat and the rest of it, you know. <laughs> so um, it was just really fascinating to see the way that these, you know, in this in our commercial world, in our, our capitalist world, these images, you know, they, they just get like churned around and repurposed. And, you know, one of those purposes was uh, St. Death, who was the most, this, you know, very notorious, you know, for a lot of people, frightening figure. And yet there it was at Walmart, you know, for four bucks in the discount t-shirts, you know. So um, I've had where some of the images that I made, some of the uh, collages that I made for Skeleton Saint, um, you know, because they're Google, they're available in Google images and that. And I was, you know, in all these different Santa Muerta groups on Facebook, I would see them pop up with prayers written on them and a watermark for different groups from around Mexico and, and Central America. And it was amazing. It was great. I was like, that's, you know, what an honor that like this image that I created for the, the site, you know, just to illustrate a point or something now becomes a devotional image and, and gets, you know, repurposed and, and taken into the tradition itself. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. That's the cross. It's a it's a cross fertilization. Yeah. 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 The, were you gonna say, Sir Phil? Were you? Oh, well, I was gonna say you you mentioned the Vargas guy who's become a, a saint, and he was part of something that I guess is a more. There are more organized aspects of this people are trying yeah. to organize it into. I guess the main one is the Santa Marta International. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he founded that and they, he built, uh, the thing that really pissed off the authorities was that he built, I think it's 75 feet tall, uh, effigy of Santa Muerta at the temple that he had. And, uh, that's in Tultalan. Um, and he, uh, you know, he had weekly gatherings, um, you know, where he would have, uh, a megaphone and would be, you know, basically, chastising the authorities for not, for not helping people and for being corrupt and talking about the corruption in the local government and that kind of thing um, in front of this 75-foot-tall effigy. Um, he got gunned down uh, in a pretty brutal way um, 
and his mother, Enriqueta Vargas, uh, was, you know, up to that point kind of worried about his devotion to Saint Death and wasn't really into it at all. She, she considered herself a pretty standard Catholic. But when he got gunned down, um, she turned to Santa Muerta and said, you know, if you bring me my, if you bring me my son's uh, killers, if you avenge my son's death, I will raise you up as a global figure and I will bring you to the world and I will have them respect you. And so, you know, time passes. She feels that, that, that that's been done, that her, you know, some amount of reciprocity for her son's death is, has been uh, done. And she takes the tradition and turns it into, from what I've seen, you know, and I don't know what the, it's always difficult when you're talking about this kind of stuff, because I don't know if, you know, five years down the line, it's going to turn out that there was a bunch of hidden bad crap that was going on. But, um, you know, on the, on the outer surface, she has done a prison ministry, you know, helping folks that, that are in jail. She's done um, addictions counseling and really turned Santa Muerta International into a force for good and for helping people. Um, she's passed away uh, recently this year and uh, uh, or the end of last year. So we, fairly recently. Um, and but, you know, Santa Muerta International has uh there's a guy in the UK that is, you know, a represent a representative. He's from the UK. He's not, you know, he's a British guy, um, no Mexican ancestry whatsoever, um, and he represents Santa Muerta International there. Um, Arlie, um, up in the Bronx, she uh, is a, a representative of Santa Muerta International. Um, my friend Hank Vine, um, who's from East Texas, just a, a guy from East Texas, he. Uh, he is he's involved to a certain extent not not so much just because he doesn't like organizations but um you know he would he would visit regularly when he was down in mexico city and and knew enriqueta very well um and uh you know hank's whole vision of santa muerta is as a charity you know as as a, a a very like positive force of blessing in the world um, and that's been his experience of it, you know? Um, so yeah. And, and Santa Muerta International was, uh, you know, it was an organization it's, uh, and still is, um, that is, you know, very centralized. She, you know, she never tried to take it and turn it into something that, that overlorded over other devotees. Um, but she did centralize Santa Muerta for the organization. And then also, um, keep out the the narco elements and the the criminal elements and what she saw as the satanic elements so um it sounds like she was using it for good for, for in its in its good aspect i suppose from everything that i've seen and again like right. i said i don't know if 10 years down the line you know it'll come out that like there was some horrible like dark underbelly to it but right, um right. from from everything that i've seen it it was a positive and so you know still is a positive um, force. Let's yeah. And, and uh, Oh, sorry. How did I mean to? Oh, no, no. Yes. Well, I was going to say that some of the, some of the symbols, um, associated with her now, the, the same, like the vestments that she wears or the colors, like there's a red yeah. version. And I guess that yeah, has to do uh, with what is being asked of her. 
Yeah, and that's a new so that's a new variant. So once it became into the in a, a very like public devotional tradition, um, different statues of different colors had different associations. Originally, it seems like there was red, black, and white. Um, the red was for love work or um, work that had to do with controlling emotions and that. Um, black had to do with uh, either protecting against evil or causing evil, depending on how you were going to work it. And then white had to do with um, purity and, and cleansing and more of a meditative uh, kind of side to it, more of uh, uh, the blessings and that kind of stuff. Um since it's gone to the public, there's also gold, which obviously is money, um, green, which has to do with uh, justice. So folks that are, you know, uh, you see like uh, conjure candles, hoodoo candles that are like law keep away or, you know, get out of jail candles and stuff like that. So the green Santa Muerta statue had to do with that. Um, there's brown, which I think is addiction purple which has to do with psychic abilities um so divination and increasing intuition in that um and then there's the seven the seven colors which fits with the seven african powers and uh is mm. kind of like a another sort of like all-powerful blessing candle and obviously represents a kind of uh syncretism with uh santeria traditions um and and more caribbean uh traditions and she also carries a scythe which i suppose that could be self-explanatory in the grim reaper yeah. tradition but yeah, also well, and a it's interesting as well well and that's a, that's an interesting thing too is because originally she carried a, a scale and oh, a globe okay yeah and so the scythe came in later um but the first, the first images of her are with uh, scales and uh, a globe. And then, um, yeah, and the scythe, the scythe can be interpreted in different ways depending. It's, and again, it's, it gets really complex when you start talking about the, the actual, like, working tradition with these things. Because, you know, you have your, your icon or your, your effigy on, the, on your altar and then depending on how you have your altar arranged, if the more you know how to work with the saint, the more the arrangement is going to have to do with what you're asking her to do, you know, even in the, the offerings and that. Um, and then also how you arrange the statue, um, how you arrange the scythe, which hand the scythe is in, um, all that kind of depending on how nuanced the understanding is with the person working the, the, the altar. Uh, will have a communication for what the intention is. So yeah, the scythe can be either to you know remove uh, you know bad, or it could be to harm an enemy, or it could be to harm the person who's trying to harm you, or it could be protection. Um, and there's different different kind of narrative elements that go with it. Like uh, her cloak is sometimes talked about in terms of her cloak being something that you can work with to kind of overshadow you and protect you um it gets pretty pretty detailed in the the way that the the narrative plays out for all these elements there's also the owl which is uh a lot of times seen uh in her her statues and that and the owl has connections to uh brujeria um Owls are connected to witchcraft in in uh, in Mexico, but also, and I think this is what gets mixed up. A lot of 
uh, uh, kind of a naive academic view of it goes in and tries to find these like traditional, like, okay, well, we have these traditions of the owl being tied to witchcraft in Mexico. And so this owl obviously has to do with witchcraft and whatever. But if you go into a botanica, you know, they've got books on new thought stuff. They've got uh, books on parapsychology. They've got books on, you know, tarot. They've got books on the Tetragrammaton. They've got uh, Lifus Levy translations, uh, translations of grimoires. And so, you know, the what the symbols mean, it's really up to the devotee and, and what they, you know, kind of how they've integrated the, um, the tradition. And that's something that I've tried to highlight is, you know, there's there's an academic view of it that tries to get real, like, this is the true tradition, you know, and there's even uh, in the popular sense where people feel like they need to go to something authentic. And so they'll, they'll make these hard lines about, you know, what the tradition means in Mexico and all that. But if you go into a botanica and you actually talk to people who are devotees from Mexico and who work with this stuff, their their resources are vast in terms of of what they're integrating with the tradition and the new age is so huge mexico had um its own new age tradition you know that paralleled the united states's and you know had exchanges with the united states new age since like the 1800s because you had uh, kardecian spiritism was you know is huge in brazil and the french influence and all that so you have all these different traditions that people may not think are there have been there, you know, for as long as they've been in the U S. So, you know, a life is levy, um, you know, which is, you know, folks know from like Crowley and from golden Dawn and, and that kind of stuff that was available in Mexico as well. It, you know, so their understanding of these things is not simply based on, you know, folk tales and like, uh, you know, um, holdovers from Mesoamerican traditions. Like there's, there's very much, there's a heavy European influence that, that is available and has been available for, you know, a long time. So it gets, it gets real complex in, in looking at it, which I, to me is more interesting. You know, once you start to see like, oh, wow, like there's these whole, you know, there's, there's a new age for Mexico that is similar but completely different than the new age we have here, you know. Um, right, different cultural traditions, different religious traditions, yeah. Yeah, blending in and, and mixing in with it, you know. Um, and that's where you see like pentagrams and stuff that are associated with Santa Muerta, um, you know, which some of them have uh, a Wiccan interpretation, and but a lot of them have uh, the, um, again, drawing on the Elifus Levy stuff and the Grimoire stuff. There's a lot of kind of Grimoire work that goes into it as well that, that is blended in with the tradition. And that also comes in in terms of, you know, when you've got these sorcerers for hire that are doing stuff, whether it's for cartels or just regular folks, like you said, you know, Adam, you're talking about your your grandma uh, doing, you know, divination for for the Greek community. You know, when you have these different people that are spiritual workers within the community, depending on what their understanding is, then becomes kind of the understanding of the devotees that, that center around that and who listen to them as a teacher. Yeah, this could be a group yeah. of like maybe 15 people, you know, they're just they're yeah. as small as yeah. that. Is is there any association to Santa Marta to Hecate? Uh, no, I, that's, you know, maybe like in terms of like neo-pagan adoption, there's been a lot of uh, confluence of 
Hecate and Kali and um, Diana and, you know, various goddess figures. Um, but Santa Muerta from Mexico is a folk saint. So nothing to do with goddesses, nothing to do with, with any of that kind of stuff. Um, in terms of, I did a, a piece called um, Santa Muerta or Saint Death and the Queen of Elves because there are some interesting parallels in terms of if you look at the... Um, if you go back and look at the prayers to Hecate, you know, from like the Greek magic papyri and stuff like that, um, there's some common ground in how the the phenomenological experience of uh, devotees to these figures, there's definitely similarities there. And, you know, Hecate being uh, herself a kind of figure that exists as a, you know, tripartite and uh working with these marginal areas and liminality and that there's definitely a phenomenological similarity um but until you get the you know until you get that syncretism from a, someone who's uh neo-pagan or that you don't really have that um and that's where it gets complicated too because it's like if you're going to do the religious studies version no if you're going to do the devotee version, maybe, you know, it definitely sure. could be, you know. And then it gets interesting, too, because, um, you know, the Caribbean, right, had, uh, because of the the English being there and the French and that, and because of the slave trade, you had, and because of the, the spice trade and all that, you have in the Caribbean and parts of uh, Mexico, you actually have uh, Indian population from India, that, that were there and that, you know, so you do have a naturalized uh, Kali, um, you know, not Santa Muerta, but in Africa, um, some of the, the, the Vodun practitioners have paintings of Shiva, you know, in there. Th and these are traditional, like this isn't like, you know, this didn't come off a of TV or something like that. Like this is really like they've had it there for a while because of the, the trade routes and that you had people from India transmitting their traditions there. And when you have um, practitioners who are actually working the saint or working these traditions, when practitioners meet, they don't meet in a way where it's like, you're not my religion, get away from me. They meet in a way where they're like, well, I do this work. What work do you do? Oh, that's interesting. Well, how does this, you know, how does this work for you? And so there's a blending, you know, and so you do have there are, there is that, but it's not, it's not common. And it's usually, it starts again with a single practitioner or a group of practitioners and then spreads from there. So it never really makes it to the, the full public, um, tradition, you know, but in, and also because it's a folk saint, people kind of do what they want. So, you know, if they felt called to Kali or Hecate or whatever, and they read about it and they worked with it, or they had a dream and they thought that it that that was what was speaking to them, they'll put that on their altar, you know? And that's another thing with this, the idea of authenticity or tradition um, with folk saints and with folk practices, it's what works. So, you know, if Kali worked for him, Kali's going on the altar. And if, you know, if Hecate works for him, Hecate's going on the altar. Like there's no, they don't question that, you know? How does the, the institutional Catholic church no, oh, they hate it. Yeah, yeah. They it's, hate it's, it? yeah. yeah, they hate it. They've they've made at this point uh, they've made multiple <laughs> official declarations of Santa Muerta is satanic, and it has no part in the Catholic Church. You think that so, just promotes the popularity more than anything? 
Yeah, it definitely it plays on a division and folks that are sick of the Catholic Church, um, especially now with the the abuse uh, trials and the the <laughs> the, ter- the terrible way that the Catholic Church has handled that, um, and people who've experienced it, and that um, that definitely plays a part. Where it's like, you know, well, you guys suck, so if you don't like it, this has to be better than this, you know. Um, like Arlie's experience, where she went into confession and was told she had no place there. Well, she turned to Santa Marta, you know. Um, there's some Aztec revivalism in, uh, you know. Uh, it's called like uh, the reconquest. So the, the kind of like nationalism for Mexico and for uh, Latin America and Santa Muerta plays into that through the idea that she's connected to the Aztec goddesses of death um, or goddess of death. And, uh, and so folks obviously going that route don't want anything to do with the Catholic traditions. And so Santa Muerta then steps in as, as a figure that can, very publicly and very outwardly and very strongly say, I'm not Catholic, you know. But a lot of devotees uh, in the popular tradition consider themselves good Catholics, and they see nothing wrong with it. And that's that's right. throughout the Catholic uh, world, you know, in, in areas that are largely Catholic. Um, there's folk traditions that the church kind of turns a blind eye to and the people think they're good Catholics and they go to church and they do whatever, but then in private they work with saints in a way that's definitely not Orthodox. seems like there's that political aspect to it too. Like the way that Vargas was using it to um, petition for change in the community and how you have this historical relationship of the Catholic church with the, the power structure. So yeah, she can be seen. I guess as kind of subversive, also. Yeah, absolutely, and and also the you know as a patron or patroness of the margins, you know all of those people have not fared well under the status quo. Right. You know, so um, yeah, definitely that that element of uh, of standing for the the downtrodden and standing for people who who have not been not been given a fair hand in in life. You know. It's just so fascinating because we, you know, we're in such a, what seems on the surface, a materialist technological world, but religion is still alive and well, and religious fires are still sweeping the world. Oh, it's yeah. still changing and evolving. Um, you know, it's just, it's pretty wild. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, again, like talking about uh, Jeffrey Kripal's work and that, and a, a lot of uh, kind of new scholarship looking at um, almost like an occult or magical revival in the sense that, um, and th- this again goes back when you, to stepping away from belief and uh, religion, you still have the phenomena, right? People still have these dreams that are heavily symbolic and that seem to have precognitive elements and that seem to uh, have elements that, you know, miracles are granted and whatever. So, you know, no matter how much technology is there, there's still the human element and the human element always has this weird ground where it's like this stuff seems to work, you know? And so, and those things then when they seem to work, they find houses and those houses are quite often, you know, uh, something like St. Death or, you know, some other belief system that sort of provides a, a framework to understand why that stuff is, is, is happening, you know? 
So whereas, you know, somebody might do, uh, you know, they might consider themselves psychic and be perfectly happy saying like, well, yeah, I, I, I did a precognitive, you know, vision and I saw this was going to happen. Whereas someone might not feel comfortable with saying that and they'll say, well, Jesus told me in a dream that this was going to happen or Jesus whispered it or the Holy Spirit, you know, moved me to do that. And so these narrative structures kind of sit around basic experiences that continue to happen for people, whether or not, you know, the technology exists. And one of the interesting things with technology, you know, um, the synchronicities and stuff that happen with technology, you know, they continue to kind of spark that fire and say, hey, there's something weird going on here. You know, like when you're thinking something and you sign into Twitter and the first tweet you see is related to what you were thinking, you know, that gets people thinking that there might be something more than, you know, just base materialism at work weird synchronicities and such. Yeah. You know, the thing with the, you know, when, um, I, when I was reading the Wikipedia article about Santa Marta and this association with the owl, of course, this immediately owls keep coming up in like the strangest places, you know? Yeah. And you yeah, know, that was Mike yeah. Cleland, you know, his work, yeah. on owls and synchronicities and all this. Yeah. And, well, know, there's a really powerful section in, uh, Kripal and Whitley Strieber's book, The Supernatural, where Strieber's talking about the owl symbolism. And he's talking about the owl as a predator that comes in the night. And if you read it, I would, you know, I read it while I'm knee deep or neck deep or drowning in Santa Muerta research. And it was almost as if he was talking about the this, you know, death saint rising up. And it was just really eerie to read that, you know, and again, just tied with that symbol of the owl, you know maybe a completely spurious like connection but you know because of what i was looking at it had this this potency you know yeah and when very strange story that uh when we did our interview with diana pasuka as i was leaving serfiel's house that night this owl just like flies right across my car oh wow yeah. <laughs> wow it was weird <laughs> wow yeah because you know uh that wow yeah that's intense Mitch Horowitz, when he was um, when he was editing the Supernatural, uh, he had a ton of owl experiences tied to that, and like, yeah, that was weird. That's a it's a weird thing. I don't know. Let's talk about something that is a little changing the subject, a little closer to home for you, and that's the Georgia Guidestones. You and yeah, I talked talked extensively about this um, at Paramania. Did yeah, you, you had the you had the deep secrets. You had the 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 truth, the yeah. Georgia Guidestones truth. Did you get a chance to DVD. watch the documentary? <laughs> the, I did not. I I was able to watch the. Um, I'm terrible. Like my like I like I get home from work and like collapse or become obsessed with something. So I was able to watch the the preview for it, um, and I do intend on watching it. But uh, I did not have a chance to watch the actual documentary itself. So we will have to we'll have to rely on your 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 knowledge and my local knowledge. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about your local knowledge first because you know, you had this because it, it's that sparked it because what sparked our conversation was you were talking about some article that was written in Australia talking about it's like some of the that they were saying it was an evil thing or that it was. Yeah. Well, it was a, it was a daily grail article. Yeah. Um, 
that Greg Taylor wrote about a town right outside of the Guidestones called Dewey Rose. And he was, he was writing all this stuff about the alchemical symbolism of the Dewey Rose and the Guidestones and Rosicrucians and all this stuff. Well, you know, I live, I live like fairly close to there and Dewey Rose is like literally a cinder block post office and nothing. Right. So like if it's a Rosicrucian headquarters, maybe it's underground. That's amazing. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. It may be like the most like complex, huge. Yeah. I, I need to go like, I need to dive deeper into it. It's like, it's like, don't say, you know, they're everything. It's fine. Yeah. You know, just go in the post office down the stairs and. I need the, yeah. I need the right code, you know, and they'll open the the gate to the the underground caverns. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously you know, it's six six six. That's all you got to do. Right, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> yeah, bring bring the child for sacrifice, and I'm let in. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was to me. I was reading that, and I was like, man. And then, like, right after that got written, there was a Craigslist ad in the Athens Craigslist, which was from QAnon, calling for people to destroy the Georgia Guidestones. And, you know, my first thought was, like, I live close to here. Like, I don't want that. Like, come on, guys. Like, chill out. And, you know, it's it's articles like that that, like, spur that kind of stuff. And there's always there's already been vandalism. And, like, you know, the folks around here have a hard enough time. Like, the, the poverty level is crazy. You know, so I'm just thinking of the locals who are, like, just trying to live their lives and, like... Sure. You know, go well, to church a, on Sunday. It's and, a good and tourist attraction, so it probably contributes to the economy a lot. Kind of, but they, you know, I mean, it's a tourist attraction for, like, folks on, like, a road trip and stuff. But, like, if you go out, there's no hotels really out there. Like, there's not a, they don't have the, they don't have the infrastructure in the town to attract tourists. So, if you go there, like, you go up to a hill in a cow pasture with the guidestones, and that's it. You know, and there's no really hotel to go to. You could eat at a local restaurant, maybe, if it was open. You know, they close at five. So, you know, it's like, get there too late, like, nah, maybe not, you know. Um, And there's the museum that you could go to, which is, they maybe get like, I don't know what the admission fee, like five bucks, ten bucks. So it's not really, it's not really a a big attraction. And uh, to some extent, and I think this is kind of covered in the the documentary a little bit from what I saw on the the promotional reel was... um, it's kind of an embarrassment at this point to a certain extent. Like they wish it was a tourist attraction, but it's kind of become the thing of where they've got to have a camera on it 24 hours to make sure that people aren't there yeah. either thinking it is something evil. So they're, then they're there to like, Oh, you know, I'm a Satanist and I'm 14 and I need to sacrifice a cat on this thing. Or they're there <laughs> to like, you know, like destroy it and spray paint it and, you know, write like things about the new world order taking over. And then they've got to clean it up. So the 10 bucks they made on the person at the, the museum now it has to be, you know, a thousand dollars to go and sandblast and do whatever it takes to get epoxy off of it, you know? So, um, yeah, just having like like living by it. Like I have a different perspective on it. And then also talking to folks, you know, because again, this area is is not a very rich area. Um, so, you know, folks have been here for long enough to remember when those things were built. And, you know, especially local store owners and that. A friend of mine owns an antique store out here and he's been here, you know, his family's from here. So um, he completely remembers when it was built. And 
you know, yeah, it was local Masons who like helped, but it was local Masons who helped because it's Georgia. And like, if you own a business at that time period, you were probably a Mason unless you were Southern Baptist. So like, and even then, like probably a Mason. So like, (laughs) you know, it was, it was not, that wasn't a scary deal. That was like, that's just the culture. People are Masons, you know? And so, um, that element wasn't scary, you know, and it was, you know, there's things like the, um, the, the pole star was drilled improperly. Like the, the hole for the pole star had to be redrilled because when they installed it, it didn't line with the pole star. So it's like, you know, this idea that it's this grand, like massive global conspiracy. Well, you know, in the pyramids, they got it right. But this grand, this grand conspiracy in the '80s couldn't get the pole star drilled properly. Like that, that's a little off. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just or and spelling. You know, the pseudonym is spelled wrong, and it's like, oh well, that's encoded in something else. And it's like, well, no, if you're around here, they may have just spelled it wrong. You know, like that that yeah. may have just been a misspelling. Like that that's kind of the way things roll around here. And like plus, it's not. Plus, I don't think that there's actually a time capsule. No, yeah, I think they yeah, forgot. Exactly. They either they either forgot to put it there, or they just totally just because it says to be opened on blank, right? Well, yeah, it just there's yeah. nothing there, you know. Well, they ran out of money because there was also supposed to be lunar stones. Um, I I had a joke with my friend uh, Joe Matheny who did the Onks hat thing. I was like, man, we should get like a GoFundMe and like you know put the lunar stones in. You know, like let's finish the guide stones. Let's have like a, you know, like a, a GoFundMe to finish the Guidestones. Um, but Did yeah, you so just be just, part of the conspiracy, David. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I am right. Like I'm, I'm one of the <laughs> Illuminati Rosicrucians that live out, uh, out in rural Georgia in, uh, yeah. Um, you probably own that you know, pressure washing business, huh? That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I stoke the fires so that I get paid, you know, like come and come and deface the monument. So I get a couple grand. Well, um, people can listen to the, to the episode we did with Dr. Future back in 2015. I think it was that we talked about this and, and Mike, you know, our good friend, Mike, he pretty much is the one that figured it out. And my opinion, really, he figured it out. And, and really what it, what it was, it was built by basically these guys that were, were essentially, I guess you could call them eugenicists, but really white supremacists. Yeah. Really? I mean, that's, that's what they were. This wasn't a big Illuminati conspiracy. Um, you know, I saw something that uh, the other day, I, I guess it was a QAnon or posted it that said that, you know, that, this really is the, the it's the blueprint for the socialist new world order, and I had to just like facepalm because I know that that's not what it is. It was actually the other side of the political spectrum that put this thing up. Yeah, these and guys it, and it was, that were they were they were big like fans of uh, what is his name Shockley that invented the transistor radio that uh, came up with all these different things about how, you know, blacks are stupid and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they, they all had these, they all had these ideas of like, basically, well, you know, what we're hoping to happen after the nuclear war is basically the white race survives and we can rebuild. I mean, that's essentially their, their idea. 
Yeah, and that's the time period too. You look at well, and there's there's the book that's associated with it as well, which I don't even think the the museum has anymore. But um, and uh, it's very much a Cold War. You know, this is what this is what we need after the um, right after the nuclear holocaust. Like these guidestones will stand and like allow civilization to rebuild itself on these principles. Um, so it has a Cold War element to it, you know. Um, which, and again, I think, you know, it's like, these things are much more interesting. Like, this is much more real. And, like, white supremacy in the South, that makes sense. You know, like, globalist conspiracy, like, we don't even have globalists now. You know, like, I mean, it's it's still, like, in especially in Georgia, like, it's still very much a, a um, you know nationalist if even that like more like georgiaist you know um they're not thinking on a global level uh they're trying to but you know so yeah it's i think that the actual history to it is much more interesting and where did they were from like the midwest too wasn't yeah, it like iowa. ohio or something iowa, iowa. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so was, uh, I mean, that, fort dodge i think iowa i may be i may be or dodge city or something like that and as far as them being Rosicrucians, they were probably just members of Amarch, you know, I mean, got their mail order packets and, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, even if even that, because that's the thing, you know, the interesting thing about Rosicrucianism is the diversity of it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, because there's so many different Rosicrucian orders um, and they may have been Masons and been, you know, if there's a there's a Christian uh, like um, degree working that you can do that is the Rosicrucian or even uh, uh, I'm forgetting all the yeah, the, in, the, the in, masonry things. Yeah, in the, Scottish Rite masonry there's a Scottish Rite, Rose, yeah. Rosicrucian order and a degree. Yeah, exactly. So, that, you know, they could have been that. You know, Amoric was all over the mail, you know, I mean, that was mail order, so like they could have been that. They could have just read the Rosicrucian Manifest. They could have been uh, Francis Bacon fans. Yeah. And uh, there's, you know, separate Rosicrucian groups that, that center around reading Bacon and Shakespeare and stuff like that. I mean, there's so many different ways that it could have been, you know, tied into that. I think, that, too, there was an element, because Mike did get something that he found the Rosicrucians were, had some kind of like vague, kind of like, kind of, kind of, almost like they were trying to take credit for it in a way. That's how it kind of read to me. That, that could be, yeah, yeah, and that could be too, yeah. <laughs> Just some Rosicrucians in Atlanta. That, and that makes sense, yeah. you know, like until you know what it is, like if it's this mystery thing, I'm sure that once it, once it, once the bad press started, and that's another interesting thing too, there's actually a history to the bad press. You know, the, the bad press didn't start until uh, the internet. It was always... There was some elements of like local people who were like, what is this thing that looks like Stonehenge, you know, like where the, the Southern Baptists were like, mm, that doesn't look right, you know. Um, but really, you get there's a there's a history to this thing being hated, which gets amped up with like Bill Cooper. And I don't know that Cooper even knew about it, but that 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 drift of, uh, you know, thinking and then into Alex Jones and, and all that, like they're definitely like is a an amping up of the considering this thing to be some new world order yeah. um, to, device. To me, it's this kind of like fascinating yet cheesy roadside attraction. 
is really yeah. what it is. But knowing some of the idea, really what is more important to look at is the ideas of the guys that built this. Once you know who they were and how this just really fits in with this whole kind of uh, uh, the American eugenics movement and yeah. American fascism and, you know, how that even goes down today because these guys were, they were later big supporters of David Duke and his presidential campaign. Right. Right. And then seeing that again, that makes, that makes more sense for the area because, you know, in between, uh, Elberton and Atlanta is Stone Mountain, which oh, yeah. was one of the headquarters of the KKK. And there's the Robert E. Lee, um, carving on the side of Stone Mountain, um, which, you know, was funded by the, the Daughters of the Revolution and by, um, there was a big campaign by the Atlanta Journal Constitution's uh, either founding editor or one of the editors in the early 20th century was the guy that kind of forefronted this campaign. And I think it's the same guy, maybe not, but there's a, there's a, a kind of birth of uh, birth of the nation sort of poem called the lay of the gray minstrel. And it's about Stone Mountain as like this symbol of like Southern aristocracy and, you know, like the the dream of the South and all of that. And so there's a much deeper history, you know, when you look at it from from the angle that you're talking about that actually ties into all these other things that are going on, you know, and, and have gone on in the area, which is much more potent and scarier, honestly, up, up, to, Char- you know? up to Charlottesville. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's still something, it's an active force in the world and that, you know, um, yeah, it's, and that, that was when we talked like that really, it it sunk in like all these different things that are, that are kind of other signposts for that, that down here, you know? Yeah. And the stone mountain, you mentioned birth of a nation when that, when that movie came out, that was actually the rebirth of the clan. And it was at right. Stone Mountain that the Klan was reorganized in 1915. Right. right. Yeah. You know, and that, again, that's in between Albertson and Atlanta, you know, like straight shot down uh, Atlanta Highway, you know. So that makes way more sense than, you know, for some reason, globalist, Illuminati, Rosicrucian, whatever, has come out to the middle of nowhere, Georgia, and make this thing, you know. But it's not, it's not sexy enough. It's not sensational yeah, enough. It's that was pretty sensational. It could be sensational. Yeah, but yeah, yeah you're right. It's not, yeah. As, yeah. it's not as magic-y, mystical kind of. It's more dirty and uh, disturbing. So now like the QAnon and alt-right have kind of said, well, you know, we're against this thing, but yet it was their ideological predecessors that built it. That's yeah. the That's the real... <laughs> Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's the early QAnon yeah. post, right? Like it's the, the it's, it's an early QAnon meme. Like it's a pre-QAnon meme. Like right out here in rural Georgia. Yeah, and it's it's weird too because uh, well, one funny thing about the Dewey Rose thing. Uh, so after I after we had talked and I said that and was like uh, Dewey Rose, like it's a cinder block uh, building or whatever. So I was out at a local shop here and. Uh, I was, uh, 
<laughs> the owner was like, Oh, my friends just showed up. You need to meet them. They're, they're interested in like similar kind of like weird stuff. And I was like, okay. So like I meet this lady and, uh, she's a, a shamanic practitioner from Florida that does like the Michael Harner, um, like shamanic journeying and soul retrieval and that kind of stuff and, uh, vision quests and all that. And, uh, she starts talking and we're, we're talking and she's like, Oh yeah, I live, you know, just down the road here. I live just a, a little ways down. And I was like, Oh, where do you live? And she's like, Oh, Dewey Rose. <laughs> and I was like, Oh really? And then she goes, yeah, yeah. I was, I was in Florida and I had a vision, uh, that I needed to go to Dewey Rose, Georgia. And so we moved there and we've got like a farm. So I was like, oh, wow, maybe there are Rosicrucians there, but it's not like the, you know, it's not the ones that people think. <laughs> right, exactly. So I'll have to report back on that. She invited me to to go to the farm and, and discuss shamanic journeying, but I haven't had a chance. So Let me know if you uh, find the, the, the entrance to the underground. Uh, yeah, I may place. change my whole story. Like, I may come back and be like, whoa, I was wrong. Like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bigfoot's probably down there too. I'm sure. Hopefully, I'll be riding a Bigfoot. Like, yeah, yeah I want to <laughs> get like the full, the full, the full initiation into the Dewey Rose secrets. Like, yeah. Well, David, uh, what's next for you, bro? And also, where can people find uh, find you and your work? Uh, well, I've got a. Uh, what's next? I don't know. Looking at weird things. Um, always. That's usually yeah. Always <laughs> is pretty much what I do. Uh, I've been getting really excited by um, space and cybernetics, so I'm hoping to to write something more on that because there's uh, a whole history of of technology and space that is very strange and interesting. Um, actually, speaking of Diana Pasolka, I have a co-authored uh, paper with her that's coming out in uh, an anthology from Oxford University Press called Believing in Bits, um, which is about uh, digital technologies and the supernatural. Um, and it's a, our piece looks at the, the visionary history of the internet um, and kind of the, the different precursors from um, uh, Tellier Deschardins and uh, Marshall McLuhan, and then uh, we take it back to Raymond Lull, who was a visionary in the medieval period, um, and kind of looking at just the visionary underpinnings, and then on into the SRI psychic work and uh, Jacques Vallée's work on the internet. So it's an interesting piece. Um, that anthology is not out yet. It's scheduled for 2019, but I don't know when that that will come out. Um, so I'm hoping to kind of do more work on that. Uh, yeah, please, please keep us informed on that. That sounds very interesting. That's right up my alley. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great, and the anthology has got a bunch of different, uh, scholars from all over the place looking at how digital technologies and the supernatural kind of blend together. So all sorts of different stuff from like tulpas to, uh, UFOs and, and all of it. So, um, my blog is David Metcalf wordpress.com and that's where i publish most stuff i've got a medium page that i occasionally publish to uh mostly folks can find me on twitter so david b metcalf on twitter um and yeah i'm uh the editor-in-chief for the windbridge research center's uh threshold journal of interdisciplinary consciousness studies 
and Winbridge focuses on uh, afterlife studies and mediumship. So if folks are interested in that, they should check out Threshold and Winbridge. Um, but yeah. Well, excellent. That is that's it. Excellent. Well, let's. Um, we'll end it here, and uh, guys, we'll yeah. be back. Oh to well, and I'll, one more oh, thing: okay. I'll be at the the Georgia Bigfoot Conference uh, in, in Raven County. So if if folks uh, want to enjoy some uh, good Southern hospitality in uh, Raven County, uh, the Georgia Bigfoot Conference is in October, and uh, it will have. Uh, it will be an interesting event. I don't know what I'm going to be speaking on yet, but uh, I'll try to make it something fascinating and uh, engaging. Very cool. Excellent. You heard it here, folks. That's a scoop. Yep, that's right. All right, guys. We'll be back to close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. If you want your HR team to hire top talent for your company, tell them about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your company's job posts, so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal, which helps us a lot. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, man, you're hiring. So I'm bringing us in, but... <laughs> Action. You don't, know, you don't know what to say. I don't know what we talked Action about. Action mutante. <laughs> you don't know what we talked about. I mean, I do, I do. I just have nothing to add to it or contribute. That's what I mean to say. I, you know, the Georgia Guidestones have always like fascinated me, but I don't know anywhere near as much as you guys do about theories behind it, the meanings behind it, the even what it says or represents that that sort of thing. Well, but Santa Muerte, yeah, Santa Muerte. That's that's something I know even less about. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> but, a lot but it's about also, it. I don't know a lot about it either. David but it's also really interesting because I have seen more. that. I've seen that imagery a lot throughout the years and just always assumed that it was, um, you know, ju- just some aspect of South American culture that I didn't, didn't know. I didn't realize it was this big sort of underground subculture sort of a movement. Right. I'd, I'd heard of it and I'd seen, definitely seen like the candles and stuff like that. Right. And I think really it was like breaking bad that really kind of keyed me into it when I, when I, about a few, about three or four years ago, when I sat down, I just like binge watched that show because it, it's pretty prominent. Because you know they, you ever you watch Breaking Bad, didn't you, Rob? Mm-hmm. I thought you had. Nope, never seen it. Yeah, but it's it, it's a, it's definitely an element because you know he's going up against like Mexican drug cartels and it and such. So you see a lot like what David described of the like little pr- procession. Uh, my friend down in Atlanta, he told me. He was living Roswell, Georgia, and uh, he was living in this complex that had a. It was there was a lot of uh, Mexican people that lived there, and he said he 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 was up late one night, and he looked over at like the little tennis court, and there was like some kind of weird like procession going on. Yeah, and they were like all wearing robes, and like oh, shit. he was like he didn't know what was <laughs> what was happening. Like Put kinda, the deadbolt on. Kind of freaked him out. He just like looked out the window and just kind of <laughs> went back and sat down. <laughs> yeah. 
But it's a, you know, like the main thing is that, uh, you know, our first amendment is everything, you know? And so it always just makes me nervous when I see the media really demonizing a marginal religious group, you know, it's like really not, it's not right. And there's like, we were talking about, there's just as many, you know, strange sects of Christianity. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not right to like pin an entire, you know, religious movement as criminal and really it being, uh, you know, it, it being something that attracts a downtrodden is what Christianity is supposed to do. So, you know, you know, criminals and quote, bad people, you know, are supposed to be welcomed into the mainstream church also, you know, Jesus is supposed right. to be for them, supposed to forgive everybody. So, you know, it's right. Yeah, yeah, there's also a little bit of the satanic panic stuff. Yeah, I think oh yeah. Because it's a skeleton oh, yeah. and because of that. Spooky imagery. Yeah, spooky imagery. I mean, we definitely get enough of that every year when, you know, Halloween rolls by. Oh, yeah. And you, you see people, you know, having the, what is it they do in some of the churches, the hell houses or whatever, where they have people getting abortions and doing <laughs> drugs and, you know, like, it, it, it gets that? even more hard. It gets even more hardcore in in the at the hell houses than it does in actual like haunted houses. Yeah, yeah. Whereas it's just horror movie motifs. It's like actual real life shit. Yeah. Damn. I remember being a kid and I don't remember where it was, but it was like it wasn't at my church. We must have went to someone other church or something because I went to a very liberal like it was a Lutheran church. And yeah. Was, you know. But they were talking about Halloween was coming up, and they were like talking about how you know. Don't let your kids dress up in these horrible Halloween costumes. You know, you should dress them up as, as shepherds and this and that. Oh, I remember being a kid, like, and thinking like, "What the hell is the fun in that?" What I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand like what the problem in like getting dressed up and having fun for a holiday. Like it, it just blew my mind at the time. Right. Yeah, I, I remember all kinds of stuff around Halloween when I was a kid. Like you remember the whole thing about the razor blades and the oh, apples, yeah. oh yeah, the yeah, drugs, all that kind of drugs stuff. And the candy, the, the the I think some of it even like the 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 dirty AIDS needles and you know the <laughs> all kinds of weird, <laughs> all kinds of weird stuff like that. So, Rob, you want to talk a little bit about Game of Thrones, man? Since you and I are the Game of Thrones fans. I've never I mean, seen a single episode. He's one of those few people that can say that and be yeah, proud. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to throw any spoilers out there. Cause obviously people are going to still watch the show and whatever. But it, I wasn't thrilled with this last season, but I'm not like, I'm not joining the rampage against like, the, the writers to recreate it or, you know, any, any of that madness. I thought they wrapped it up well. I, I I predicted the ending, most of it anyway. Uh huh. But so you were pretty satisfied with with the end of it. Yeah, I feel like I can move on with my life. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I I invested a lot into this story. Like, you know, I read the books before I got into the, the TV show, and when he stopped writing books, that was when I was like, all right, I guess I'll watch the show because he's not writing books, and the TV show is passing it. So that was when I started watching. So it's you know it's been like five or six years in the making, getting to this point. But well, see, I have a theory that I think that what he did was 
had them do the TV show so that he could just do a different ending. That's what I think, and too. see how the reaction was going to be. That's to what I the, keep telling Alyssa, because he had less to do with the writing of the show than yeah. with the books. So, like, I think he's, yeah, I think you're right. And it, the story did, I mean, it started to diverge around, like, season three or four. Yeah. So, you know, he's only written up to, what, five, six books of the eight? I think five, yeah, I think it's, well, then it's six, it's, then. I think it's actually nine books. Because there's two more five. left, right? Isn't, the, the la- isn't it? There's one more, and the one after that's supposed to be the last one, as I understand it. Yeah, but you know, it had already diverged quite a bit. So that's what I'm. That's my theory too. Is that he's just like, if he doesn't die before he writes them, it's been ten years since he wrote a book, and he's like seventy. Well, see, I've only read the first book. They're so good, and the first book almost was like verbatim to the first season. First two are, but. You, but you've told me that there's a lot of there's a lot of extra characters. There's characters that actually come back from the dead. There's characters whose storylines are merged in the TV show. There's yeah. people that are still alive at the end of season eight that died in like book three. Like it's it's very different. Right. There's that one. Was it was it Sir Bannister or Barristan is actually still alive in the books. He's the yeah, thanks I'm for all the spoilers, to, no, guys. No. Gosh. No, I think he died the same way as he does in the show. Okay. Yeah, they were saying that. Well, they were saying something like he was still alive in some of the books. So, so it, there's definitely a divergence there. So I don't think yeah. that he's gonna. I don't know if it's gonna exactly end the same way. I doubt. And it how will. could it? Why? Why would he do that? Why would he yeah. write something that's already been written? Well, because like they said that all he did was just give like some kind of loose outline to the to the producers. Right. The thing is, though, like. I don't know. They could have gone any way that they wanted to without having any kind of material. So I wonder if those guys were just good at adapt- adapting things, but not good at, you know, exactly. And coming up with their own. Not stuff. only that, but they're they're doing the the final Star Wars movie. So there's a lot of people think that they were just like, well, Game of Thrones is over. Let's just get it done, rush through it, and get to working on Star Wars because we're really excited about Star Wars. Because for some reason, someone still is. <laughs> disgruntled star wars <laughs> fan over here man i was the biggest star wars apologist forever until that last movie came out <laughs> so are you not gonna go see the what's the what's the last movie gonna be i don't know i don't even care <laughs> <laughs> i can't even remember the name of the last movie episode eight the last, last jedi. jedi okay <laughs> what a pile of crap <laughs> Uh, is there feel any thoughts on the interview uh, or on Game of Thrones? If you <laughs> no thoughts on Game of Star Thrones, Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> um, nothing that uh, we didn't cover. I mean, it's a uh, turning into a pretty large religious movement, and like I said, I've had personal contacts with devotees who are good people, not criminals, yeah. you know. Um, so you know the uh. I just don't like to see the demonization, but I mean, there are criminal elements who are using it to their advantage. It's like they're criminal elements using all kinds of religions to their advantage. It's like there's terrorists using religions to their advantage. So, you know, governments, yeah, sure. You know, first amendment comes first here. So, you know, I, I just don't like anyone persecuting any religion. 
And we definitely have a big block in this country that likes to use their religion to impose yeah, their power yeah. on everybody else. A little more than uh, Santa Muerte is uh, yeah, doing to yeah. me. So. so what's the real threat here? Right. Um, all right. Well, next week, guys, uh, I've got scheduled Aaron Gullius. We're going to talk about some more stuff from his Hell saucer yeah. life. Always a pleasure. Great podcast. We're going to get into a little alternative three and the background behind that. I'll have to watch it by then. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think yeah. you can find it on YouTube. Yeah. I think it's cool. there. Yeah, I don't know if it's as good as Game of Thrones, but it's, it's definitely it's there. Probably better. <laughs> it's probably better. Yeah. Better than season eight. Better than maybe. Star Wars. Better than Star Wars. <laughs> the social justice warrior Star Wars. <laughs> All right, guys. Rob, tell everybody where they can find our Patreon and what they can find there and how to join. You go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We've got several tiers of subscriptions there available um, for, I believe it's the lowest donation, a dollar now. You get all the bonus yeah. episodes, and we've got a lot of those up there. Um, a lot of great guests that have hung out with us after the show and talked about a little bit wilder, a little bit more out there ideas, a little more free form, a little less radio friendly sometimes. Just fun yeah. stuff. Um if you don't subscribe there, you can help the show with a one-time donation at our website at conspiranormal.com. And if you want to help the show but you don't want to spend any money doing a five-star review or just telling your friends about us is the best way to do that. All right, absolutely. And we got a, a, a three-star, two-star review saying that we were Christian propaganda, <laughs> by the way. Hey. Uh, only yeah. one-third of us is. Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> I guess I'm the Christian propagandist here. Dang, Adam. You're so close-minded. Well, you talk to all my, these people every week and put these shows out. Uh, especially after my last statement, I'm a real pro- Christian propagandist. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week on Conspiranormal. Uh, um. Rob, Serfiel's got to get you the new theme song. Yes. inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.